0: Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks to James Rogers, the founder of Appeal Sciences, about how Appeal uses plant based materials to extend the shelf life of produce and reduce food waste. After that, Danny's joined by Lauren Baker, the director of programs for the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. They discuss the concept of true cost accounting, inclusive philanthropy, and how to transform good ideas into lasting change. Enjoy the show.
1: Before we chat with uh, Dr. James Rogers, the founder of Appeal, I want to give some context about uh, food waste and, in, 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 you know, uh, globally. Um, we've all heard these statistics for a long time, but I, I think they bear repeating. Um, we waste about 1.3 billion tons of food every year around the globe. If food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Food waste um, often, you know, is a is a personal thing. We buy too much. We uh, throw food away before it, it needs to be thrown away. We waste food at restaurants. Um, on the farming side, there, when farmers don't have a lot of great cold storage techniques or other storage techniques, um, food is lost in transport there's also a lot of food left in fields and that's happening especially right now as covid sort of takes hold on the global south uh, farmers aren't able to get into their fields to to harvest things so there's a lot of of uh uh you know ways that food is lost and and what we've seen during covid is you know because of disruptions to supply chains a lot of food has you know been dumped milk we saw sort of at the beginning of of covid being dumped because there was nowhere for it to go we saw potatoes and other produce being dumped so this is this is a problem that despite all the awareness and research that has been going on for the last 10 or so years it's still an issue when there's a global shock like covid COVID-19. And and folks like Dana Gunders uh, from Refed are predicting that we might see more food loss and food waste this year uh, because of COVID-19. But our guest today is a real expert on on how to prevent uh, food waste. Uh, Again, James Rogers is the founder and CEO of Appeal, a company that creates plant-based coatings that keep produce fresher longer and helps reduce food waste. Um, Rogers holds a a doctoral degree in material sciences, started Appeal with uh, grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and now counts Oprah and Katy Perry as investors in his company. And I've known James for a little bit now and watching this company grow and watch him take the global stage and just to be sort of you know be uh, be a spectator has been really exciting because this is truly a revolutionary um, product that he's created it, it's truly helping people around the world and I'm so excited uh, to have James with us today thanks so much for joining me James
0: it's great to be here nice to see you in in, in 2d too bad. I <laughs> be 3D, but it's really really great great to see you. Thanks for having us on the show.
1: No. And again, we're so excited. James, you know, we've had the opportunity to talk a lot over the years, but um, you know, for our listeners and our viewers to get to know you, one of the things that I like to do is ask everyone sort of the same first question. I like icebreaker questions. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, so lots okay. of icebreakers occurred in my uh, life, right? And so right. it's an easy, it's an easy one. And it's, what is your favorite food memory? Do you have a favorite memory from childhood?
0: A lot. The first one that came to mind though, and it, it's uh, relate. Really, I guess, you know, we're digging into some childhood memories here, and, and maybe now I know how I got into uh, this food waste thing to begin with. But the first thing that came to mind when you said that was I remember growing up, uh, we weren't allowed to leave the table until we finished our food, and it was the, the clean plate club, my dad called it, and it was, right. it was torture at the time. Um, now we maybe could use, uh, use, use a couple more uh, club, club members. But uh, that was the first one that, that came to mind. I remember my brother uh, falling asleep uh, in his mashed potatoes, uh, <laughs> trying, to, trying, trying to, uh, to, to be a member of this club. So um, that was the first one that comes to mind.
1: That's amazing. My mom has it. <laughs> my mom has a similar story where her, her mom made her just sit at the table for like 10 hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, so that I, I, That's a battle, battle a of will at that point.
1: Totally, totally. So I guess my first question to you, and and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but why did I feel like what you've created is so common sense, right? And it's so useful. Why did it take, I mean, you're brilliant, obviously, but why did it take so long for somebody to come up with this and then, you know, make sure that it was used commercially?
0: You know, like, Dan, just, just like uh, taking a, backing up from that one in a second. I think it's the same reason so many things in the world don't exist. You see it and you think that's an obvious answer and surely someone must be doing that. And you write it off as, you know, oh, well, it's not, it's not happening either. You know, it must be impossible or someone's already doing it. And because I have to admit, those are my first thoughts with appeal as well. It was, well, this is obvious someone it's either impossible or, or uh, there's something I don't know that makes it impossible or someone's already doing this. And uh, I I have to admit that was, it took me almost two years to uh, formally start the company because, I was convinced that this was too obvious, um, for someone not, not to be doing already. And it wasn't until years later. Um, and I, I, I speak about this all the time, uh, particularly with our, with our interns that come in for the summer. It's like, you know, the, the world is the way it is, um, because people have either decided to do things or decided not to do things. Right, right. So, um, you know, uh, uh you know, in, in, this one, you know, even, even, and then, and then particular to appeal, um, you know, monks in the middle ages figured out that you could apply beeswax to apples and they would right. last a little bit longer into the winter. It's just, um, we get, we often get to an innovation and then we say, well, that's, that's the innovation's done. Sure. And so I, I think with appeal, it was just, us looking at that and going, well, okay, you know, that was the solution we came up with 2000 years ago. Is there anything we've learned between then and now that we could apply using the same idea and just sharpen it so that we could add, you know, further, further and further um, utility. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, um, to me, that's the, the beauty in, in the solution is, that it seems so obvious. Um, right. and, and, and at one point, you know, I love playing into this even further because, you know, at one point it was really weird to put your food in a, in a refrigerator. Right. You know, at right. some so point insane. it was really, you know, it was like, you know, we're going to bring this box into your home and you're going to put all your food in it, and it's going to stay longer. And people were like, Whoa, uh, you know, I'm not putting my food in any cold box. What's going on in there. And, and so I just, I think it's going to be, um, uh, amazing to watch this come full circle, where it you know that that, that uh, you know, solution like appeal will be just um, you know what we expect, and uh, the refrigeration um, will will start to feel weird again.
1: Yeah, no, it's really cool. I described it as a plant based coating at the beginning, and your name, you know, appeal sort of implies that it's appeal. Could you tell folks exactly what this is, and sort of, you know, remember that we're we're we all don't have PhDs, right? So, uh, if you can explain it to <laughs> yeah, LA a lay audience, yeah,
0: a PhD is a disability in many in many settings. <laughs> so, um, you no, know, I you know the this so. The the thing that I find really remarkable is um, if you look, if you're if you're somewhere you can see outside right now, every surface of a plant is covered with this thin polymeric barrier called cutin. When plants evolved out of water and onto land, the evolutionary adaptation that allowed them to survive outside of the water. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't dry out because when they're in the ocean, they don't need to prevent drying out because they're surrounded by water. But when they get on the land, in order to prevent them from drying out, they needed some sort of protective barrier. Mm -hmm. And so they evolved this protective barrier around the outside of them. And that evolutionary adaptation was such a huge leap um, that every single surface of a plant that you see is covered with this, with this protective barrier. Um, And, and so when we started the business, uh, the, it was really from a thought experiment. Um, you know, knew nothing about uh, fruits and vegetables. I was working on uh, solar energy technology during my right. PhD, and um, there was this thought experiment where, okay, if you leave a strawberry on the counter and you wait, and you leave a lemon on the counter and you wait, the strawberry melts into a puddle after a couple of days, but the lemon lasts for a month. What's going on? They're both food. They're both made of the same materials. And so we thought to ourselves, well, maybe there's doesn't doesn't take a, a Ph.D. to say, well, maybe there's something about the peel of the lemon that makes it special relative to the, the peel of, of the yeah. strawberry. And so uh, we, we zoomed in and, and I was shocked to find out that the, the two surfaces were chemically identical, made of exactly the same building materials, which is where this insight came from, that every plant is protected by this same right. barrier. And so the, the next question that we asked was, well, maybe the molecules on the surface of the lemon are arranged differently. Same materials, but maybe they're arranged differently on the surface of the lemon relative to the surface of the strawberry. And I'll spare all the nerdy details in between, but that <laughs> turned out to be the case. That they're the same materials on the surface, they're just arranged differently. And so that was where the material science background came in to say, okay, how do we get those same materials and how do we mix them up in the liquid so that when they dry, they assemble into an arrangement that more closely resembles the arrangement of the lemon than it does the strawberry? And so that was where the, the value of the material science training came in to say, oh, if they're both using the same materials, those materials are everywhere. Let's just get those materials and then let's teach this trick to the strawberry, to the cucumber, um, to, to the, the mango, et cetera.
1: It's really remarkable, and I think one of the things that is so remarkable is you don't have a food background, and and what I think about that is that we need more people who don't have backgrounds in food and agriculture to be thinking about these problems that, that are facing the world, whether it's food loss and food waste or others, and you, I, I, I know you described having a PhD as as a disability in some regards. You know, I live with a PhD, and he, I don't think he'd say that, but um, I, I, I think that, you know, there there's a lot To be said for this interdisciplinary work, there not enough of that happens, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how we can encourage that more.
0: Yeah, you know, I I feel the same. Uh, You know, one of one of the things that I get taken aback with is, um, you know, the things the things when I look around that all I can explain them as are magic happen in nature.
1: Yeah,
0: and and so this idea that you work in agriculture means that you have, like you're basically trying to understand everything that grows on the planet, which is an impossible task, <laughs> so right? Like it's just like, like 3.8 billion years worth of evolution. And, and you study agriculture and you're supposed to understand every single thing that's <laughs> happening. On the planet. You can't, you have to reduce it to, to kind of generalized principles. And 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 the magic you, when you when you go to the generalized principles you kind of lose the magic of whatever it was, yeah. and so I, I to me it's it's a matter of um, studying agriculture and and studying the food system, but but also n- not being afraid to lose the generalization and zoom in mm-hmm. to really really uh, particular things um, because. I think it's you know only by zooming in on really really and focusing on really really particular things um, that you get you you can see behind the curtain and you 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 see what the magic that's happening and then hopefully yeah. you can take that and, and extrapolate it, it, it to other things. So um, I agree. Um, you know, if coming in with a fresh set of eyes, I think is going to be a really valuable um, thing, skill anywhere, um, and it just so happens to be that uh, agriculture is. And 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 nature is fascinating. And we have a tremendous amount we can learn from the system that's been going through trial and error for 3.8 billion years. You know, talk about talk about innovation. That's an incredible amount of, of innovation. And so I think if you know, not just an ag but anything, you know, that's happening in the natural world, coming at it with, you know, tools from a different discipline and then just saying, we're just gonna really pay attention and see yeah. what's going on here. Because there's probably some really exciting insight to be found that may have value elsewhere, kind of like this peel of a lemon versus peel of a strawberry. Who knew that there was something to be found there?
1: Right. It is really cool. And I love this comparison about zooming in, and that's where you find the magic. And I mean, there is so much magic in this work. And, and when you look at food and agriculture, there's so much to be done. And if we can find those sweet spots, that's where the real difference can be made. Um so, I, I guess you know a lot of our listeners and viewers are probably wondering, but what is it? <laughs> what is it like? What is it made of? And how does it do this? And does it make things taste different, or smell different, or feel different?
0: Yeah. So, so the answer from a material science, from an, an, a, a science perspective, is lipids. So, broadly speaking, there are kind of three big buckets of plant material that compose everything uh, in a plant. So there are carbohydrates, which are like um, sugars and starches, and then there's proteins, which we're all familiar with, but they're like the machinery that makes things go. And then there's the lipids, which separates everything from each other and keeps everything in its in its various wow. compartments. So we isolate those lipid materials, the stuff that's that's creating all the compartmentalization inside of the plant. We isolate those and then we apply those back onto the surface, so we create a. Uh, We use the little compartments inside to create the big compartment on the outside. And that's, that's the trick. And by, um, and this is where you get into the engineering part by really precisely figuring out the combinations of those compartment materials, you can slow down the two things that cause food to go bad, which is basically water going out and oxygen going in. And if tune that just right so that you slow down the water going out and you slow down the oxygen going in, you slow down the rate that all of that metabolism is happening inside of the fruit or vegetable. And so it's able to last two, three, four times longer, even without the use of refrigeration. So when I, when I think about a piece of fruit or a vegetable, I always think about it as, um, this, it's like a battery of nutrients that are plugged into the tree which are plugged into the sun, okay. and the sun's energy is basically charging up with nutrition these these fruits and fruits and vegetables. Because uh, evolutionarily, the, the the animals that ate these fruits and vegetables had better nutrition, so they survived. So it was in the plant's best interest to to, to transfer that nutrition to the animals that would eat them. The problem is those nutritious molecules um, have a lot of energy. They're like the charge of the battery. So once you pick them, they start to lose that charge through oxidation, through auto cannibalization. And so over time, they lose that nutrient density. And so by using a peel, we can slow down those oxidative processes. We slow down the respiration. And as a result, we don't add more nutrition, but we maintain more of the nutrition that was in the fruit um, as it was charged up on the tree.
1: And that nutrient density angle of, of this, I think, gets lost. We're not just preventing food waste; we're keeping nutrients in by using this, and that's especially important. I mean, I think it's more important now than ever because we need more immune-fighting uh, foods in, in our in our systems. I mean, COVID has proved that probably more than anything. Um, what? Is, so this works best on things like apples, avocados. What else, James?
0: It works uh, that every piece of produce on the planet spoils by the same mechanisms, water going out, oxygen going in. So, you know, we happen to, to select the avocado because um, it is the poster child for post-harvest waste. Right? The Internet meme with the avocado, not now, not now, not now, now. <laughs> and so by creating this little extra peel that allows the avocado to stay ripe for twice as long, we change that experience in in people's yeah. home. And so you start to say, wow, I normally experience all this waste in my home. And if that wasn't the case, what what kind of shopping behaviors might I have now? Maybe instead of buying one avocado, I'd buy three avocados because I know they're good on everything. But I'm nervous about throwing some of the way. And we start to shift some of this abundance into people's homes. And this is now really being accelerated as a result of COVID. In COVID, we saw huge shocks in you know, shopper uh, frequency went from something like two and a half to three trips to the store per week down to one. And so now people are really experiencing this food waste at a greater magnitude than, than they were previously. And so you know, we, we've really counted ourselves very fortunate to be able to be a helper um, in the situation where you're going to the store less frequently and you don't want to throw, throw food away in your home.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You're, it's, it's a great help to folks, I think, right now. And the taste is good. I mean, because we're friends, I got a great big box of apples at around Christmas time, I think, or the holidays. And they were delicious. And they lasted forever. Like, we, my <laughs> husband and I kind of tested them. We're like, let's, let's see <laughs> if James has really got this under control. And they yeah. tasted delicious for months. It was, like, amazing.
0: Yeah. That's what's really fun about this, too, is, um, you know, apples are, I think, a really nice example you know, when you go into the grocery store today, you're confronted with very few choices for types of, of produce. Yeah. You know, if if you know you, you know you you'll only find one kind of avocado; it's a Haas avocado. And the counter example to that are apples. Actually, you'll find dozens of apple variety. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason for that is if you think of a, a grower as an investor. Well, if I'm going to invest in growing a new variety, my, if, if I think about it as an investor, my willingness to invest is what's my probability of success multiplied by what's my total addressable market? And if I grow a new strawberry and that strawberry lasts for one day, my total addressable market is everyone that likes strawberries that lives within one day. But if I grow a strawberry that lasts for 30 days – my total addressable market is everyone likes strawberries that lives within 30 days. And so if you think about this in the context of apples, because apples last for like a year, if I invest into a new apple variety, it's everyone that's going to like this flavor of apple that lives within a year, which is basically everyone. Whereas something like an avocado, it's Everyone that's going to like this new avocado and lives within, you know, 15 days, lives within 20 days. It's a much riskier proposition. And so the thing I get really excited about in the apples that some of the apple varieties that, that um, we sent to you are varieties that normally couldn't make it to you because they go bad so quickly. And so we have an opportunity by relaxing perishability to introduce more biodiversity into the food system. So when you go to the grocery store – you stop at, you shop at grocers that carry appeal, you're finding and discovering things that you didn't even know existed on this planet, which is like part of the magic uh, to me. It makes it so fun.
1: Absolutely. And it's like eating that biodiversity that will, you know, help that biodiversity continue. You know, it's when we have monocultures that, you know, these things go away.
0: And it allows more people to participate in the food system. It allows small producers who are growing something really interesting that takes a lot of care and attention. We haven't figured out how to scale it. You know, it's the local producer in your town that grows that variety of strawberry that you wait every year for those two weeks that you can pick them up right there, but then they're gone again. It allows those producers to now grow enough produce that they can get broader distribution, make it more economically viable, and have more farmers. We can, we can make, make farming things uh, an investable endeavor, you know, same way that you, that you have, you know, companies get started and funded. We should have people started and funded to grow new varieties of things that are better tasting, more nutritious, um, and grow better in our, in our local ecosystems.
1: Absolutely. it's There's so many wins embedded in that. You're protecting the environment. You're helping small farmers. You're creating more biodiversity that's available to folks. There's nutrient density. It's all of these great things. It's really cool. You, you talked about you know um, how we might be changing our minds about refrigeration, you know, several years from now, and and we're we're places where the you know cold chain supply or cold chain infrastructure hasn't really you know ever gotten to um, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America, South Asia. W- what can the impact of this be for farmers in the global South and consumers?
0: This is uh, probably the thing that I get uh, most most excited about. You know when. When, when telephones were introduced into Sub-Saharan Africa, they never installed landline telephones. Right. Went straight to right. cellular communication, and that's enabled a leapfrogging in infrastructure development that hasn't been witnessed in many places. So, you know, when when you know today we're so reliant on uh, this cold chain infrastructure, the most successful companies right now have been the ones that have invested into that cold chain infrastructure, and so. You know, when we come along and say, you know, we we have a solution that nature has figured out that doesn't require that we put fruit in a cold, wet box. <laughs> we can take this perfect wrapper that nature has designed that the orange has perfected and use that to power a food distribution system without the use of without the you know requirement to install refrigerated equipment to maintain that equipment. Um, to power that equipment, you can start to reimagine a a food district, a food system that's, that's more participatory, right? Today, it's a story of the haves and the have nots. And the haves is really a function of whether or not you can access refrigerated infrastructure. If you can, if you going back to this idea of your addressable market, if you can access refrigerated infrastructure, your distribution radius grows by a factor of four instantly. If you can't, you're stuck, you know, only being able to access markets that are that are this close to you, and so you know this is um, you know, probably the part of our work that I'm, I'm most excited about is you know, providing a technology that can act, act as a proxy for refrigerant infrastructure in places of the world that um, maybe would just we're not willing to wait that long um, for that infrastructure to be built. We can we can accelerate that and we can we can leapfrog that market access.
1: It's really the part that I'm most excited about too. One, because of what you described about it being participatory, but it democratizes so much of what has been under the control of just a few players. And I think that is so, so exciting. You're going to get more, it's going to be more profitable, as you said before, to be a farmer. You're going to get more young people involved because there's like cool technology. You know, there's all of these, again, wins that are really uh, sort of inherent in what you're doing that I, I think, you know, that's what's groundbreaking. And that's what's going to change the world.
0: You know, I think, I think our generation is um, unique in, in um, many ways. But one of them is, has been that, you know, because of all the technological development of the past, kind of getting us to where we are, we're, we now have so much technology at our disposal, it's given us a chance to take our breath, catch our breath and look around and say, you know, are there anything, are there things that we should fix right now? Are there yeah. things that we're doing that got us to where we are and, and we should thank them for getting us to where we are that we don't, that, that we see as, as potentially not being great for us if we continue doing them right. that way. Right. And and that's, that's really, really tricky because it's, it's even got a name, right? The innovator's dilemma. It's, yeah. you know, well, we kept, we were doing that thing and it got us to here. So obviously we need to keep doing it. But unfortunately, it's, it's, the, it's, it's actually, you need to flip it on its head and say, we need, to thank, we need to thank those technologies for getting us to where we are and giving us the opportunity to take a breath and look around and think, how could we make this better? How could we continue improving? And, and I always just, I, I get so motivated by this idea that we have an opportunity now to refocus on, on, on building the, the bottom of the pyramid, you know, food, shelter, water. So that we can build a system that supports more, that's able to support more people and and our planet because the foundation that we're building on now, we've done all the tricks. We've done everything we can to try to max as many people as we can hold on top of that, that little foundation. And it's just not going to support a couple more billion people. So the opportunity now is to refocus and use this opportunity where, while we're out ahead and say, let's build a foundation, so that so that other things can be built on top of that, that look after our, look after more people, and now look after our planet as well.
1: Yeah, it's an exciting time. It's a really cool time to be involved in these things. So, sort of to change the subject entirely, what's it like to get funding from Oprah and Katy Perry?
0: <laughs> uh, it, it's great. I mean, they they see the same future that we do. They see the future of a food system. That's measured not on calories but on nutrition, and is counting more people in than than, it, than yeah. it's counting out. And um, you know, we're just really fortunate. Both, both Katie and Oprah are neighbors here in, in Santa Barbara, so that, that that's how they got involved. Um, uh, I, I just I can't think of a place in the world that um, agriculture, material science, and pop culture intersect so naturally. So, just counting ourselves uh, fortunate to. Um, have have some folks uh, on board as as supporters of appeal that, um, you know, we'll cover the material science side of things and, and they can cover the communication side of things. Yeah,
1: it's amazing that they can help spread the message. I love it. I love it. So final question. But before I ask it, I want to make sure people can uh, find out more about you. They can go to P- appealsciences.com. They can follow you on Twitter at James Rogers or at Appeal Sciences. Any other websites or handles you want to give out?
0: Appeal.com.
1: Great, great. Um, so, what's next, James? Like, what's next? So, we're in this—I'm sure—a time of reflection. I know I've been reflecting a lot on, on how I, you know, think about the food system because of COVID and all those kinds of things. But where do you see the company going now because of of all that we've experienced?
0: Yeah, no, I, I love the I love the question, Danny. Um, I would I would uh, back up just uh, and say. Um, More macro, I think we're headed into a a new age, and um, I'm really partial to this and biased to this as a material scientist, because when you look back on human history, people uh, have defined the age of human development according to the materials that we've had available to us. So Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Steel Age, Silicon Age. And I think in retrospect, the age we're in now is going to be called the plastic age. Mm -hmm. And so I get really excited about this idea that we're entering an age of sustainability where we're now using the tools that we've been provided to look into the natural world, to identify the building blocks that nature has been using and reusing and recycling for billions of years, use those to create solutions that nature already has the perfect recycling system for. So that's, that's where I think, I think we're going. I think appeal is, uh, uh, is, is part of that solution, but I think there are dozens of others um, that are trying to, to tip us out of this age of, of plastics and into this um, age of sustainability where actually commercial success and sustainability uh, align. Yeah. Which, and if we can do that, right, the system that we're working in is a capitalist system. And so, if we can find ways that making the sustainable choice is the lowest cost, then we let the system work for us, and we don't just hope that people do the right thing. We don't hope that people, you know, do the clean plate club. We just make the clean plate club the most economically, you know, friendly way to do things, and it's aligned with the sustainability objectives. And then, um, then, then I think this, the then I think we built the system uh, appropriately.
1: That's a great point. And I think companies like yours who have started off with sustainability in mind, if we're going to talk about who comes out on top in this age that you're, you're referring to the, you know, the post plastic age, I've also heard of like the greater awakening, the great reckoning, whatever we call it, it's companies that started off doing the right thing that are going to be the most profitable, the most impactful, the problem solvers. So that's really, really exciting. I'm so glad to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. A uh, reminder uh, that our next episode will be with Chef Barton Siever, who is also a sustainable seafood expert. James, so great to see you. I applaud all the work you're doing. Thank you.
0: Danny, great to see you too. Nice to catch up.
1: Take care. Stay well. Today I get to chat with Lauren Baker, who is the Director of Programs at the, for the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, which is an international consortium of over two dozen nonprofits dedicated to a more resilient and equitable food system. Uh, Lauren has worked all across the food system in North America for more than two decades and was recently a food policy specialist for the Toronto Food Policy Council. And I have to say that the Global Alliance for the Future of Food has been incredibly generous to Food Tank over the years. They funded um, a bunch of the work that we did on true cost accounting in the food system um, a few years ago now. And they are one of just the leading thinkers and doers in this space. They, they really put their money where their mouth is. They walk the talk. And they're a, a, a consortium of, of, of foundations and leaders who really Try to make the food system better in a million different ways. So I'm always honored to see Lauren. She's become a good colleague and a good friend over the years, along with Ruth Richardson and many others at the Global Alliance. So thank you, first of all, Lauren, for all of the work that you do. It's, It's incredible to see how much GAF, as we like to call it, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, has grown over the last
2: several years. Thanks so much, Danny. It's so um, great to be here with you and to see you again, uh, even virtually. Um, and I just want to kind of um, echo your appreciation for you. So it's been fantastic to partner with you over the years on so many things and have, um, have be able to rely on Food Tank to kind of amplify our messages and be kind of thought leaders in all the great food systems work that we're collectively um, doing.
1: So, yeah, great to be in this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. So even though we run into, I mean, you know, before COVID, BC, before COVID, we used to see each other probably four to six times a year, uh, all over the world, at different meetings and and that those kinds of things. And I've had this great opportunity to get to know you a little bit. but when um when I first started doing this podcast, my favorite first question to ask everyone was, you know, what is your favorite food memory? Because I think it really, that's, that's the way to get to know somebody is like, what, what do they like to eat? You know, what are their memories around food? So can you share with us maybe a favorite food memory? One of my um, favorite food memories
2: is from when I was really little. Um, I, I moved around a lot when I was little, we moved as a family every couple of years. My um, dad worked in international development and, uh, we worked, he lived, we worked overseas. He worked overseas. We lived overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, and we lived in Nepal, um, Kathmandu, Nepal, for a couple of years. And so one of my favorite memories is um, trekking um, through Nepal. Uh, through Nepal, uh, we were doing the Everest Base Camp trek. Um, and, you know, being in these tea houses, um, drinking sweet tea and eating um, dalbat um, rice and lentils. And I'll never forget that experience and those flavors. So they always take me back um, to that place. And I also think, you know, through that experience of moving around a lot, I became really aware of the importance of food, the diversity of, you know, food cultures and traditions. And I've come to see, like, over the years how much that has, um, you know, informed my work, right? And also really aware as a young child of issues of equity, and kind of injustice in the food system. So right. um, being able to kind of like see uh, poverty and inequities close up like that. So that's one a favorite memory.
1: <laughs> that's really awesome. And so formative. I mean, I think without that experience, you probably would not be the person that you are. And like, you know, it's, it's funny what makes us, you know, want to get into this line of work and, and do these things. And I think, you know, the experience of, of not just eating, but smelling, you know, uh, interacting, you know, really getting to know cultures and people. That's probably the most important part of the work that I think I do. And I think, you know, a a lot of what the Global Alliance does is to really, you know, help, help amplify those different food and agriculture cultures. I mean, culture is part of, you know, agriculture for a reason. That's
2: right, and you know, part of um, that memory are the is the kind of landscape element as well. So, just the beautiful landscapes that accompany these um, food traditions, and um, you know, recently I've been thinking about this in the context of our work. You know, how do we really acknowledge that our agricultural landscapes um, are so diverse across the world, and that diversity? is what underpins our food system. So how do we you know maintain that diversity, strengthen it, um, uphold it as we think about the future of food, and also really link it to our collective health and well-being. So ecological health and our um, kind of community uh, human health um, as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's kind of a fairly new way of looking at agriculture. As part of a landscape, not just as you know in its own silo, in its own sort of of um, you know place. It, it realizing that agriculture is part of this greater landscape, and that what we do in agriculture affects, as you said, health. It affects different parts of the environment it affects culture and equity. This is a fairly new way of looking at agriculture. I think
2: so. And, and, um, you know, really the COVID, uh, crisis has heightened our understanding and awareness. I know you've done tons of thinking about this as well as we all have. And, um, you know, it's really amplified the fragility and the vulnerability, um, across our food system and linked in that human element. So centrally, right. So, You know, who are the workers, um, who are the farmers, who are impacted, who are the small, medium, large business people who are, you know, striving to cope and adjust and adapt during this time. So I think it's um, helped us see the linkages um, more clearly and helped us see uh, how fundamental that relationship is between um, ecological health, agricultural, biodiversity, um, human and animal health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, almost in every guest, almost every guest in every podcast is the same thing. You know, fragility. We talk about linkages and connections. We talk about, you know, those cracks that everyone's seen. What are, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about sort of winners and losers, right? And and unfortunately, you know, that's kind of a way to sort of categorize, you know, who's going to come out the other side of this in, in the ag and food world better better off so who who do you think some of the winners will be
2: you may remember that we published uh, last year this work called beacons of hope and um it's really um amplifying um food systems transformations globally so basically we're saying you know food system transformation is happening and here are you know a whole bunch of examples of transformation pathways, really interesting examples of um, organizations, people, businesses, uh, governments um, who are leading um, food systems transformation, as well as like some of the sort of specific levers for change and dynamics, you know, in the transformation process. So uh, we, we return to um, some of the beacons to really understand, you know, how their sort of overall systemic resilience W- was faring in the context mm-hmm. of COVID. Um, and we learned a couple of, of really interesting things um, that I think are worth sharing. Like one of them is um, when we asked um, some of the beacons of hope, you know, how things were going post COVID, they really talked about how um, their work to cut across silos, to be inter and cross-sectoral, to have more inclusive and participatory processes that are um, kind of at the foundation of their work um, help them to adjust and cope. Um, you know whether that was like a city government or whether it was you know an organization that you know, works in a really inclusive and participatory way. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, another example is um, you know one of the key themes of that work was true cost accounting, um, and you, you know you and I've done a lot of work together on this. Um, and uh, in that, uh, there's one example, one beacon, um, which is a private, small private sector company called Yosta out of the Netherlands. It's a fruit and uh, vegetable um, distribution company. And I was really interested to learn, like, of course, they experienced some shocks to their supply chain, especially in mm-hmm. the early days. And um, you know, were able to adjust. And also, uh, they've experienced a real demand, like rising demand for their organic um, produce. And, and, you know, I think many of us have um, heard that from other places as well. The other thing that they did is institute a living wage policy and campaign. And I thought that was really interesting in the context of kind of winners and losers, right? Like it's very forward thinking. We need sustainable uh, livelihoods a- across the food system, and um, the living wage concept I think is a really good one for that. So I think you know that's an example of um, you know how to face the future squarely and um, think about how you're going to be part of um, the collective solutions that we need uh, moving Absolutely. into the future. So yeah. an example I think of you know how to how to pivot to to have more likelihood as a winner.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I want to stick to that point about a living wage for a moment, because that's, for some reason, very controversial in the U.S., maybe less now than, you know, pre-COVID. But, you know, it's it's so common sense to me, especially for workers who are part of the food system, whether we're talking about truck drivers, or grocery store workers, or the people who are out in the fields harvesting, it it makes such perfect sense. Why do you think, you know, in a country like the U.S. and maybe in other parts of the world too, I don't know what it's like in Canada around this idea of a living wage, but why is it so controversial to pay people for what they're worth when they're often doing dangerous work in the food system? If we're, I mean, we can tie this to true cost accounting in the food system as well, you know, because we don't value the folks who are part of the food system.
2: Yeah, I mean, at the heart of um, paying people inadequately for um, the important work that they're doing across the food system is the idea that, um, you know, profits can be um, privatized and, you know, all the kind of costs can be, um, you know, are part of the are, are the public system's um, responsibility. And so we're paying for... Um, those poor wages one way or the other, whether it's by needing to short emergency food um, distribution, by paying for uh, the poor health outcomes of those workers um, because they're so vulnerable, you know, whatever the case may be, um, you know, somebody's paying for it somewhere. And so I think we need to um, make policy adjustments that, um, you know, really ensure that we, uh, have kind of equity across across the system. The living wage is a great way to think about it because, of course, the cost of living is different in different places, and so there's really is an easy way to kind of um, make adjustments for yeah. um, the cost of living in different communities, rural and urban, and uh, pay people accordingly so that they can, you know, buy the good food that they need. Um, you know, part of the living wage um, is also, you know, all of the other. Um, social benefits that people deserve when they're, um, in that, uh, precarious employment, like healthcare, access to good healthcare, access to citizenship rights and pathways, if they're migrant workers, um, et cetera. So, uh, there's like a whole bundle of, uh, you know, rights, responsibilities, and, and kind of obligations, I think, that employers have and, and need to face, um, you know, if we're going to have more resiliency across the system and be able to withstand, you know, this is um, COVID uh, and, you know, we've seen we're we're living it and we can't really anticipate future shocks. Um, But I think um, COVID has helped us realize that we should be preparing and um, thinking about how those shocks will impact, you know, government, uh, communities, businesses, um, and try and anticipate um, some of those impacts.
1: It's really interesting to me that you say that, that I think COVID, you're right, has taught us that we need to prepare more for global shocks, but we've been experiencing, you know, this looming threat of climate change for as long as I've been a working adult, you know? So I, I you know, we we knew this was coming 17, 20 years ago when I I got into the food space and around the same time, I think you did. So why, is that? Is it because, it, you know, people didn't get sick immediately we know people die every day from climate change uh, so it, it just it, it boggles my mind that we had this we did have this looming threat all around us all the time but we're not taking action in the same kind of way that we do around covid
2: yeah and ironically of course the, there are so many parallels between the impacts of climate change um in terms of, you know, who is impacted and how and the impacts of COVID in terms of who is impacted and how. So, um, you know, we know that climate uh, change, um, you know, climate shocks, climate um, extreme weather affects, you know, more vulnerable countries and communities differently than it affects, um, you know, wealthier, um, nations. So, you know, this is the irony of the situation is we're learning a ton about, um, climate, uh, the climate crisis, um, in this yeah. COVID moment. And of course the two are intricately intertwined, right? I mean, uh, you could argue that the roots of these crises are absolutely the same. The destruction of nature, um, the ecological crisis, the divide between humans and nature, the sort of false um, divide, extractive economies, um, you know, threatened biodiversity. So, um, you know, it's, it's a wake up call for sure. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think the climate crisis is probably going to materialize it, through these um, kinds of shocks. I mean, we see the, the fires in, in Australia um, and in California, um, drought, insect infestation. So we're seeing them materialize really differently. Um, seeing the crisis materialize
1: differently in different contexts, and and COVID is sort of one manifest,
2: a global manifestation of it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You, you mentioned when you were talking about the Beacons of Hope project, this ide- idea of transformation pathways, which I think is such a really eloquent way to put it. That you know, it's very positive, and I think. One of the things that came out of the true cost accounting work that you have done and and the, the Global Alliance has done is this framework. It's called the TEAV Agri-Food Framework. And I said from the very beginning that that's the worst acronym Ever. Do you ever, I just want that on record again. But, <laughs> we're, but, we're trying to work on that, actually. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, so I was hoping that you could talk about this framework and how it's, you know, uh, a way to look at true cost accounting as a framework. I mean, this is also something new to look at how to, to implement these things as part of a framework and not just like, oh, we're going to do, you know, we're going to use this tool over here and a different tool over here but to really look at it holistically as a framework.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about our true cost accounting work right now. and of course, um, it's so timely. So in in the true cost accounting work that we're doing, we're really trying to understand, um, the externalities, um, visible and invisible, positive and negative um, that are, that result from food systems activities. And we're trying to really strengthen and mainstream this work. So um, the, the TEB agri um, evaluation, food system evaluation framework, you know, at, at its core, it helps us think systemically about the food system. So it asks us, you know, What is, you know, if you wanted to evaluate, for example, you know, corn production um, in the Midwest, say, like, what is the context that that corn production is happening in? You know, what are the subsidies and policies and programs um, that, you know, support corn production? What are the impacts across four capitals? This is central to the framework. So uh, natural, um, natural capital, so environmental impacts, um, produced capital economic impacts, the things we usually measure, you know, profit and yield in right. food systems, but also human and social um, capital. So what are, what are the human and social impacts of this activity? Um, so we're working with a really broad um, community um, on, on strengthening and mainstreaming um, true cost accounting. We're developing guidance Uh, for uh, applying the framework in really practical terms. I'm just reviewing um, our document, our guidance document uh, earlier today. So really excited to get that out in the world. Mm -hmm. So you can do a TEEB application and it will look like somebody else's TEEB application. And we can begin to, you know, generate, um, you know, a body of work and a practice of um, supporting uh, the application of true cost accounting in food systems. So, um, you know, I think I think that that framework, um, which was developed at the developed by the U, United Nations Environment Program, uh, really is has in the last few years become the foundation of you know food systems evaluation globally, and now we need to um, put it into practice. So through the through the U, UN Environment, they have a number of country level studies underway. Uh, the Global Alliance is supporting some work. Um, some, some studies one on community-managed natural farming in Andhra Pradesh. Nice. And another on beef systems in the U.S., um, beef ranching systems, uh, led by um, Kathleen Merrigan at uh, ASU. Um, so we're really excited to get that work out in the world and to work with this um, network of really innovative practitioners who are applying true cost accounting, Um, harmonizing um, tools, approaches, you know, thinking about metrics, the associated data that's required to do this analysis, and really pushing the system's um, thinking
1: agenda. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. I should say Teab stands for the economics. What does it stand for? Um, the economics of ecosystem, ecosystem. diversity. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I tried to forget it, apparently. But I, I think it's <laughs> no, and I have to say that Food Tank uh, was a part of the steering committee for the Tea of Agri Food Framework. It was a really exciting thing to be a part of because you did always feel like you were on the precipice of something that could be world changing. And so I, I think this community of practice that you're, you're creating all over the world, whether it's with, you know, Dr. Merrigan or, you know, folks in India, this is really, really exciting to see the, all of that hard work that you and Ruth Richardson and the steering committee, um, it's really coming alive now. And I, I think that's, you know, oft, it was a frustrating process along the way, but I think such a valuable one. Extremely valuable. I mean, it involved you know 150, you
2: know, experts, stakeholders, um, in you know, in the kind of thinking. Um, behind the scientific and economic foundations report Um, for the most part that group is still you know really actively thinking about these issues and then linking um, you know true cost accounting comes up over and over again just just today the FAO released the state of um, food food, uh, nutrition report and one of the key messages there is about the um, cost of you know business as usual and um, the costs are exorbitant like we talked about earlier so Um, We really need to look at, um, you know, how food systems are driving diet-related disease, um, how they're driving um, ecological degradation, and um, begin to rectify that. So through through the Beacons of Hope, we know that food systems can also provide solutions, that there are transformation pathways. True cost accounting is a really important one. Governance is another that we've already talked about today you know, agroecological circular regenerative approaches, um, that are connected to nature, um, you know, is another kind of important, um, transformation pathway. And we want to really understand those, like, what do those transformation pathways look like on the ground? You know, how do people make change? Um, how do, how does policy change occur? How do, Innovations in particular places become mature. How do they stabilize? And then, how do they, um, you know, become part of uh, the status quo and our regular practice and way of of making, um, growing, making, eating food?
1: But yeah, no, it's it again. It is really exciting. This point you you made about business as usual has cost us a lot. I mean, I think that's one thing we've learned because of COVID nineteen. But my question is, how do we get businesses to change? Because I, you know, I I can talk about how CSAs have grown and farmers markets have grown and regional and localized food systems. People are talking about them in ways that they never did before, before COVID. But Big food is making a lot of money right now. Oreo cookie sales have gone up dramatically, you know, and, and, and that's fine. I, you know, I'm not judging anyone. Everyone needs a treat, you know, or, or whatever, but how do we convince businesses to change and to follow whether it's true cost accounting in the food system or some of these other things that will be truly transformational? I think we need
2: to work with um, innovative businesses to answer that question and. There are innovative businesses, um, small, medium, and large, who are grappling with this exact issue. So, you know, we have highlighted through our Begins of Hope work, you know, some really um, innovative businesses. We're also working with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development um, to think about standardizing um, some of the true cost accounting approaches for businesses so that they can apply, you um, you know, more integrated reporting, um, and have that be standardized so that, you know, company A can compare their practices to company B and, and the leading businesses want this kind of harmonization, um, in the approach, because right now it's sort of like, here's, you know, here's my work and, and you can't really compare it to, um, anyone else's. So we do need to work with business. There'll be winners and losers, um, as you say, and businesses, there are a lot of entrenched. uh, you know, people. Uh, you, there are issues of power in this as well, right? And we need to. You know, this is really at the crux of food systems transformation to to understand um, those issues of power and um, to navigate and and dismantle um, those uh, you know yeah. power
1: pathways. Can Can we talk about that for a second? Because you and I have again been to many of the same meetings. And we all around the world, and and you walk into a room of individuals who look exactly like you and I do, and and I you know, and this is a problem with events that you know I plan, that events you know f- other food conferences I go to. How do we get more of that? It's it's not just diversity in terms of, you know, different colors of people. It's diversity in terms of socioeconomic background, youth, you know, getting more of the folks who are going to be taking these issues on in the room. How do we grapple with that as sort of a, a you know, movement around food and agriculture? Yeah, I think we're really
2: being called to grapple with this in a fundamental way right now. And um, you know, to have a diverse set of voices like you just described around the table really changes the conversation in, yeah. in a real way. So, um, you know, we need to be very, I think we need to be very disciplined about how we do that. We need to, you know, knock on the door of our food systems, uh, you know, partners who look different from us and set the table completely differently so that their voices can be integrated into the conversation. And this is, you know, I'm a you know white woman who has a lot of privilege. Um, and I want to, you know, acknowledge that and address, you know, white supremacy and issues of um, power and privilege in the food system, because I think really believe that it's the only way that we can get to um, this kind of fundamental change that we need. So we're all on a learning journey around this and, um, you know, partners who are um, racialized um, in the food system have been really generous. And it's time for us to, um, you know, really address these issues head on.
1: Absolutely. And I, I love the phrase setting the table differently. I mean, I always say we need to be more uncomfortable, but setting the table differently sounds much nicer. And, and when I, we do that, we'll be uncomfortable. And that's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's about time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, b- before I ask the final question, I want to make sure people know where to get more information. They can go to futureoffood.org. They can uh, follow you on Twitter at Lauren O. Baker. And they can go uh, to at uh or org future of food org. Any, any other websites I'm missing Lauren? Um, There
2: is a website for beacons of hope as well. Foodsystemstransformations.org. Anyways, you can find all that on our global Alliance website too.
1: Awesome. And we'll have all that available on our social media and foodtank.com. You know, so one of the things that impresses me about uh, the global Alliance for the future of food is that you're bringing all of these different organizations and philanthropic entities together, that's very unusual in the philanthropic space, I I think, in so many ways. How do we create more of that? How do we encourage foundations to not work in their own silos, but to work together towards common goals? I think it's a
2: it's a constant challenge, and the amazing thing about the Global Alliance members, who are philanthropic foundations um, in Europe, North America, Brazil, India, is that they have you know thousands of partners on the ground um, doing incredible work, and so um, you know what we're continuously doing and striving to improve upon is is connecting to those partners and connecting to you know other people uh who are working and interested in on food systems transformation of course it's like growing tremendously right now the the number of people interested in these issues and find ways creative ways to engage them in the conversation so you know this is really about um Inclusion, participation, democratic participation at every level of the food system—you um, know, from our, you know, community gardens uh, in cities around the world um, to food policy at every level, um, to corporate governance um, to decision making and leadership forum, like the upcoming Food Systems Summit. I mean, everybody wants to um, have a seat at the table and we need to push ourselves to find creative ways um, to uh, invite people into
1: the conversation. That's exciting. Yeah, that that Global Food Summit, uh, Food Systems 2021 uh, that the UN is putting on will be, I think, a, a hopefully, I mean, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, a really um, transformational way to look at this post-COVID. I mean, hopefully things will have um, settled down by then, but it is something to be excited about. Thank you again, Lauren, for all the work that you do. Thank you again for your generous support of not just Food Tank, but so many small nonprofits who are working in this space and individuals who are trying to do a lot of work around the issues that we've talked about. I, I'm so excited to, to call you a friend and a colleague because you, you, you're just, you know, a wealth of information. So thank you so much. I hope folks will join us on our next episode when I'll be talking to James Rogers from Appeal Sciences. Lauren, thank you again and please stay well. Thank you so much, Danny. It's so great to connect with you today. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.